Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, we've got quite a long conversation, and I was looking to potentially split it into two and make it a two-parter again. But in fact, um, I listened to it back, and I was thinking there wasn't really a convenient place to break it. So we're going to let it roll the entire um just about an hour. <laughs> so you can listen to it in chunks if you want. You can listen to it at a faster playback speed. But the content's really good. The conversation's really good. So uh, I had Richard Park, who's an experienced portfolio landlord, developer, and author. Sergio Grandi, who is a RICS chartered surveyor. And Daniel Riley, who's been full-time in property for five years. Joining me, who's you know worked on smaller projects through to small conversions like HMOs up to now. Uh, commercial conversions and uh, part new build as well. So we've got an, a range of experience on the panel. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll come back and wrap up shortly. Here we are again, another panel discussion for the series of uh, Property Core Skills on the Property Voice podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome um, the panelists with me today. And one, one of the panelists is trying to join, so we'll see how that works out. Um, I can see, we can see Vaz's name, uh, we can't hear him or see him right now. So let's see if Vaz joins us. And you're wondering who is Vaz, but he may join us, he may not. But the the, the people who we can see and can hear around the table right now are Rich, Richard Parker or Rich Parker, just to differentiate from myself, um, Sergio Grange and Daniel Riley. So uh, hopefully Vaz can join at some point. We'll, we'll welcome Vaz when that happens, if it happens. But probably let's get us started. Um, what I normally do on this sort of panel discussion is just go around the panel, if you like, and just ask you to do a quick sort of one-minute intro, just just so the listeners have got a bit of context, a little background about who you are, um, what you're kind of involved in, and what your you know interest or or experience in the in the area of managing projects is. So, if you wouldn't mind, um, I'm not going to sort of force anyone to go first. So, just. Chip in, who wants to introduce themselves and, get, and kick us off? So if I go first, Richard. So my name's Richard Parker. Um, I've been involved in property in terms of buy-to-lets and things like that for about 16 years. Um, initially an accidental landlord while I was full-time employed as uh, an engineer in the automotive industry, which I enjoyed very much. Um, but I've been continuing with property all through this time and went full-time in property about three years ago. And uh, I'm now really enjoying it and uh, developing into all kinds of projects. I've got commercial property. I've got blocks of apartments, HMOs with students in. So I've got a, a broad portfolio of properties now, which I'm looking to continue to expand. Thank you, Rich. And you didn't mention, you know, any sort of I, I, I try not to push push the book too much. I think I've, I've mentioned it once before. So uh, okay. SAS pension legacy for those of you who are interested because I have got a SAS pension and, um, and I was so interested in the subject, I decided to write a book on it, which is uh, available on Amazon. Well, you know, I, I'm sorry for torturing you and making you say so, but, you know, it's a really good book. It's very niche, very specialised, but every, every property investor should, should read that, honestly, because uh, it can open the, the door to quite a significant additional funding stream uh, or an, an alternative way for you to invest uh, monies under your own control. So it's a very good read. Cool. Thank, thanks, Rich. We'll call you Rich if that's okay, just to differentiate with, with me. If that's okay. Cool, cool. So Daniel or Sergio, who would like to go next? Go on, I'll go next. Um, I'm Daniel Riley. Um, <clears throat> I've been full-time in property now for about five years. I started off on uh, quite a big new build development, which was uh, very like a luxury type of development for, for large houses, 5,000 square feet. Um, it went, it went, there were some troubles on site. So instead of going for the bigger new builds, I've gone for 
more control. So buying something smaller where I've bought a shop and converted it into apartments and then moved on to some other apartments. And I'm in the middle of renovating my house, as you can see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the listeners might not be able to see, but um, yeah, we can see a bit of drying (laughs) plaster there behind you. So uh, it's all looking good. Um, It's interesting, your journey, we might come back to it because I know that you started you know, effectively working on a, a, a building site, a new build development, as you say, sort of large, luxurious. Um, but now you've gone back to smaller, whereas people tend to go the opposite way. So it'd be interesting to maybe get some of your insights and experiences about how you followed that path and uh, and why you did, maybe. Yeah. Thanks, Dan, Daniel. Appreciate that. So, yeah, there's no hiding place now, I'm afraid. You, you, you're, on <laughs> the, for me. you're on the floor. Yeah. So um, my name is Sergio Grande. I'm... Um part-time property investor. I have a HMO student student property in Liverpool and I'm in the middle of um, getting another property which I'm going to be living in and also doing some refer work to it. And my full-time job is a chartered project surveyor in which I will be running 126 um, residential units project which is about 25 million pounds. So I'll be um, managing the commercial side of it, uh, which it might come helpful during the conversation, maybe. That's pretty much me. Thank you. And what about, do you have any letters, you know, that are relevant to your uh, business card and CV these days, Sergio? Yeah, I recently got chartered by the RICS and the um, CIOB. So that's something I'm happy about. And hopefully it always um it will help me in the future excellent all right so i think uh, unfortunately it doesn't sound like we we can hear from vasil of or vas uh, maybe he'll join us later so i can't do the introduction uh for him right now but i guess if we just think about the panel you know including myself we've got a range of experience and project sizes and levels and in uh, etc and, ex- and and time in the in the in the game so hopefully we'll have a nice, interesting mix, you know, from the DIY uh, developer, investor, project manager, if you want to call it that, uh, right through to professional, large-scale, new build. So, um, yeah, quite a good thing. So I guess, you know, just to kick us off, so managing projects, what, what's a project, you know? So what is a project? Um, we had a little chat before, but, you know, what, what would be a typical project from the panelist's point of view that you, you might get involved in? Let's start us off that way. Rich, we come back to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, it could be something as simple as uh, as a very light refurb. Um, for example, um, simply replacing some cabinets or units within a kitchen. Um, you know, it could be as light as just replacing doors and some flooring and, and uh, uh, you know, touching up the walls with some paint. It could be a very simple light project like that. Um, equally, I would say another a project could be a complete new build. You know, they're, they're, they're at completely different ends of the spectrum and both of which I've done um, to uh, lesser or greater success, depending on obviously who's involved in that project. Um, but for me, any any task like that, uh, I would class as a project. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think, Daniel, you kind of gave us a bit of a hint in your intro that you, you worked on sort of this uh, four-unit new build development that we, I think was ground-up development, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Purely new build. And what have you been working on recently? Uh, the most recent is I'm in the middle of um, a renovation on two apartments, two basement apartments, which have needed underpinning and they'll need um, a tanking system for the building regs. So anything underground, you need uh, basically an insurance back guarantee that no water will ingress over time. Mm-hmm. So they're the most recent. And and just before that, I think you were involved in another project, I seem to remember. Yeah, that was um, a commercial to residential, a shop that were in Manchester into a couple of flats. So two bed flat downstairs, two bed upstairs. Okay, cool, cool. And Sergio, what about you from your perspective? You probably can answer professionally and personally, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, so um, I think from from a um, purely investor's um, point of view, 
um, the, the house, the flat I'm going to be buying um, in the next couple of months, it could it could apply as a bit of a um, light touch um, refurbishment project where I've got a flat that's perfectly livable in it, but I just want to change a few things, make it a bit more attractive to the tenants. So you can do that just by changing the bathroom, redoing the walls, changing carpets and, and so on. So that could also be a project. Absolutely. Um, were you going to add to that? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no. And on the professional side, um, I'm actually curious. So on your, in, in your professional role, in your professional capacity, you know, just give us a bit of an insight into maybe some of the projects you might get involved in and then what your role will be and maybe if there's a, anybody else involved in that. Well, it, it gets quite lengthy because um, <laughs> obviously the process is very long. Um, but from my current point of view, from a main contracting um, perspective, we generally tend to get involved when um, we get a contract from our client, generally stage four RIBA, uh, RIBA, uh, which means we can get to a point where we can develop the design with the subcontractors and get it to um, construction stage. And uh, commercially, really, my, my role is to... Um, negotiate well get the budget from the from the um from the client and just split that into the different packages find all the companies that could do the different trades negotiate the uh, bill of quantities with them employ them negotiate the contracts and then during construction stage doing all the monthly valuations to them negotiate any changes any extras um, and also from a main contracting point of view, negotiate the valuation up the line with the client, making sure I get enough money from the client um, and I don't pay too much uh, to the subcontractors. And then just doing, uh, doing the monthly reporting to my, to my board of directors. And at the end, just doing final accounts, making sure the contractors finish the work um, on time and with the right quality and agreed agree final accounts with them and to the next project. I guess in your, just to stick with you in a second, Sergio, uh, I guess in your sort of day job, these projects, they're, they're substantial value contracts uh, with multiple mandates and uh, over an extended period of time. Would that be right? Yes. So currently the, the, this 126, million, um, 126 units project, it's, uh, it has a value of 25.7 million. And it's gonna go over a hundred and three weeks, so just just over two years, under two years. Cool. Uh, Daniel, does that sound like the sort of budget you've got for your um, your basement, you know, conversions? Yeah, not quite. <laughs> I'd have to go down quite a few floors. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the budget for mine's about about eighty grand. So yeah, quite a difference. About eighty grand, and then the one before you said the um, commercial conversion. Yeah. How much was the budget on that one? Uh, I can't remember actually. I think it was seventy-ish, if I remember. Eighty, seventy, eighty. Yeah. Quite hands-on on the project for keeping it down. Decent chunk, but more than you know, just putting a bit of carpet down and a lick of paint on the wall, though. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, there's there's when you start with the shop front, you've got to get. Um, the services in so the three phase electric just little things that are just a, a level up from your normal house renovations yeah I'm going to come back to that actually because I'm going to try and get to you know what's different about managing the project and what's involved but Rich just to give us a you know an insight into some of the budgets that you are kind of have been working with give us a sort of a flavour of some of the things you've been working on so um, I mentioned like a, a very light refurb and I'll exclude labour costs um, in the first one. So, for example, just a light refurb, one bedroom flat um, that would I, I would target for um, around three, three and a half thousand pounds plus labour costs. Um, but um, in terms of a new build, so I, you know, a few years back, I had a, a bungalow that I was building and uh, that came in at about one hundred and eighty thousand pounds. 
um, with a value of about 330. So, you know, that's kind of the, 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 the each end of the budgets that I might be dealing with in terms of my properties generally. Interesting. And, you know, um, from my own part, I think um, I've had you know, an evolution or a growth in, in my project values over time. So I've probably gone from licks of paint, you know, three, five, 10 grand refurb sort of thing, uh, particularly in the early years, um, you know, progressively increasing, you know, in complexity and budget size, things like HMO conversions, probably spending about similar to Daniel, the 80K, you know, to about 120K on those sorts of projects typically in sort of middle phase of my experience. And more recently, some of the projects I've been working on, they vary in size, but some of the last ones have um, had a sort of budget value of about somewhere between three and 600,000 in terms of works, you know, build costs. So that kind of positions us, doesn't it really, in terms of, you know, the audience. So that hopefully that's useful. But I think what I wanted to get onto, so we've got differences in budgets and um, timelines and maybe the kinds of projects, but what are the similarities? You know, what are the things, common elements that we need to look out for or, or consider when we're taking on a project? You know, um, anything that would be consistent throughout any type of project? Let's, let's just get your thoughts on that. Who'd like to go? I think one thing that's consistent, if you've got, if you've got tenants above and below, is just the difference is... The difference in a normal house project where you just plaster a ceiling, if you've got tenants above, it's just um, for your building regulations, just adding fire and soundboards, just little things that you might not think about. So you might have to engage with building control, basically, right? That's um, typically with a project. I mean, if, you, if you're just doing a, a, a single family home and ripping a kitchen out, you know, you might not need to involve them too much. Obviously, if you put a new boiler in, you need to notify them of that. But um, in terms of, you know, you might have neighbours and you might have building control. So you might have a party wall, for example, if you've got um, to do work to, you know, to a semi-detached house or a, or a linked uh, terrace sort of house. And then you might get building control involved to, to make sure your work is to a certain standard, I guess is what you're saying, right? Yeah. And it's funny, actually, because so what you say there about um, maybe you have to put some fireboard or soundproofing in. And that adds to the cost, of course, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what else is what else do we need? What is common? What else is common when we're looking at projects? You wanna have um ideally a contract if you're gonna be working with third parties, especially contractors or subcontractors. And in that contract, obviously you can you can do uh a standard one like a JCT or something like that, um, or a more uh, um, not so standard one. And in there, I would include things like scope of works and, and bill of quantities, if if you could, because that helps a lot with avoiding discrepancies during the construction period. Yeah, JCT, Joint Contracts Tribunal, right? just to to spell it out um so that would be <clears throat> excuse me that's a formal contractual structure that you'd find in um typically you know you know even minor works contracts as they're called have got a fairly decent ticket size um of of works maybe 50k or something like that you know or more you might in, in use something like a jct contract um i don't know what the other guys think but if you talk to your local builder about we're going to stick this on a jct contract what sort of reaction might you get to that Shock. <laughs> Shock. Uh, yeah. So a lot, a lot of builders I, I speak to at the sort of lower end of project value, let's just say that, um, they, they're not really wanting to get involved in that. They see things like, you know, liquidated damages clauses or retentions or you know, extended warranties or, you know, things like that that are built into, your, you know, the, the more formal contracts that Sergio probably is really familiar with. Um, but your average, you know, one man in a van uh, type of builder might be a little bit reluctant. So from a contracting point of view, absolutely, I think it is a common element, but it might be the nature of the contract um, could vary. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal JCT contract. There's other versions out there, like from the, I think it's the Federation of Master Builders. They also have a standard contractual structure as well you could use. 
but then you know perhaps coming down i mean what maybe rich and and, and daniel with some of the projects you've worked on how have you engaged you know some of the people that you've got working with you well i'll tell you um a funny story about the very first project that i did which was um actually a new build of uh, uh, two masonettes uh, on an end of terrace and this was literally my first project um going back 16 years ago and i'd got several quotes uh, from builders and it was interesting you talking about contracts because um the quotes came in and quite naturally, um, I went for not the lowest, but I went for one of the lowest. And uh, I'd had quite a co- good conversation with the builder. And, um, you know, I'd heard, you know, I'd done some research and, and thought it's a good thing to have a contract. So just as we was wrap, wrapping up the discussion, I said, uh, what about a contract then? And he literally spat in his hand and put his hand out and said, that's it. I give you my word. And I'll be honest, I went with it and I am still using the same builder. I was very fortunate, very lucky the first time. Um, I'm not saying I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying it worked for me. Um, But certainly there are times I think you just have to go with a a little bit of gut instinct. But uh, where it's possible, um, particularly these days in terms of insurance and litigation and things like that, I would definitely recommend a contract wherever you can. Yeah, and about you, Daniel, have you engaged people with? Very similar, really. I, I forgot. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a bricklayer by trade, so luckily I know quite a lot of builders on a personal level. So, like you say, I'm look, you're lucky enough. If you get a decent builder who's just willing to take a handshake the first time, it could be uh, you know a bit rough thinking, is he going to complete the project? But if you have sort of scopes of works and timeframes and he's sticking to them. If you're, if you're sort of on his case without being, you know, like a teacher, you can, you know what's going to happen. You just need to be really on the, on the ball with them. Fair enough. Um, it's funny, I was talking to a stockbroker today um, for a random reason and um, I've got a business where I needed to get his authority to do some work on his house. And um, it, it, we needed to replace some Velux windows. Um, so it was about a 3K, 4K job, something like that. And I just, you know, just said, oh, is it okay? You know, sorry about the bad news, but, you know, can we proceed? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I said, it's okay. If it's okay with you, I'll probably just send you a quick email just to make sure we've got it authorized and clearly in writing because that it would be a contract, right? An exchange of emails would classify as a contractual arrangement. In fact, I was saying so is a con- contract, but it's very hard to prove. <laughs> so um he said oh i'm a stockbroker my word is my bond carry on <laughs> so like oh okay uh, i'm still gonna send you an email anyway <laughs> which i then did so yeah you I'm, I'm not sure that the spit and handshake is is for everyone um and if you do happen to know people in the trade then um fantastic but yeah i would suggest always having some kind of documentation uh, of what's been agreed um, and that should, you know, have the basic information, who's doing what, what sort of price is being agreed or what sort of payment arrangement you have for the job, what's included in it. Um, and, you know, those, those types of things have, a, have some simple, like an exchange of emails uh, or, or simple exchange of letters to protect yourself. And here's a tip, by the way. Um, I unfortunately um, have been on the receiving end of one or two uh, contractors not doing such a great job. And um, I, I had the unfortunate experience of having to talk to a litigation solicitor uh, about, you know, well, this has kind of gone a bit wrong. What, what are my options? And he said, well, it's going to probably cost you 50K, you know, to go after this uh, particular builder. I think the contract value was um, 120K. But they, they haven't spent 120K. Um, they spent about 70. He said, but it'll cost you about 50K if you wanted to pursue them. Um, he said, but can I ask you a question? He said, um, who did you contract with? Oh, I said, oh, the building company. He said, was that a limited company? I said, yes. And he said, did you have the personal guarantee of the director of the company? Uh, no. Have the, has the company got any assets to speak of? No. He said, in that case, I wouldn't bother. Um, so he said, you could take them to court. It'll take about 18 months. It'll cost you about 50K. You may or may not be awarded your costs but even if you did and you went to that extreme and you won and you were awarded significant amount of your costs, in all likelihood, the, the builder concern would just fold the company and you wouldn't see the money. 
So he said, um, what I always recommend people to do to avoid people like you speaking to people like me is to um, either get the contract in the name of the builder personally or take a personal or director's low, uh, sorry, guarantee. Um, Alternatively, you can actually get construction insurance specific to the project and it's well worth paying the premium on that in case things were to go a little bit wrong and at least you have some recourse that way without having to go through the process and be as disappointed and probably as stressed out as uh, maybe that picture point um, paints. So that was the litigation, um, construction litigation solicitor who speaks to people in this business all day. So um, that was that was um, pretty sobering, I've got to be honest. Um, but now that is my very next um, contract, I did exactly what he said. And I... Um, I basically made sure that the owner of the uh, building company was uh, had was uh, you know signed on the dotted line himself personally. So that's what I did in that case. And on another contract, we insisted that there was an insurance that you can get construction insurance. So we, we you know specifically um, made sure that they got that. It wasn't a very expensive uh, premium actually, well worth doing. It. And even if you have to pay for it yourself, I'd recommend doing it anyway. That's a bit of a digression. Probably frightened everybody away from doing projects now uh, by mentioning that. So we've got contracts. We've got, uh, you know, people like building control. Maybe if we can add to that, we got sometimes we've got planning involved, haven't we? Generally around projects, one of, one of the reasons why things go wrong, particularly in property, is um, the responsible team members it could be a subcontractor or it could be building it could be you know planning or it could be some other authority um, when they're not under your control and that I think is always a, a big problem why people either miss their timing you know they've got a target date everyone thinks they can deliver on certain timing <clears throat> and one of the big things obviously is they miss their timing equally those kinds of things where those people aren't under your control is a result of why your budget is exceeded. I mean, generally, very simplistically, projects usually uh, are problematic because you miss your timing or the budget's exceeded. And I think one of the biggest problems for people within the property industry, particularly if you're starting out and, and you know, you could just be doing a small project, but if you are not completely in control of those people, i.e. that they work for you. And, and by contracting a job out to someone does not mean there you've got control over them, unfortunately, as uh, you've just alluded to with the project that you were talking about, Richard. Um, I think this is one of the biggest reasons why people in property have problems with their projects. And um, it's very difficult, particularly, <clears throat> the, again, as you mentioned, Richard, planning um, can be a law unto themselves um they don't see you as the customer um you're just another person that they've got to deal with and and they've got their job and their remit and uh, and it's as simple as that and they'll they'll deal with you how they deal with everyone else which is often it does vary council by council if you if you you know you're dealing with the individual councils um, building control sometimes you've got a bit more control over those because I personally always go pr private building controllers because then they they work for me and I've always found them personally <clears throat> to to deliver better than local councils because particularly if you're doing property in different areas because every time you're new learning new building control team members and things like that and they don't all operate as the same so for me, that, that's just highlighting one of the key things in, in terms of why projects can be problematic. Yeah, totally agree. I think you mentioned, you know, planning is not a consistent point, so maybe you shouldn't have actually flagged it because you don't have planning with every project. But um, you've gone into what is consistent, which is budgeting, you know, your budget uh, for the project and obviously the timing. And uh, you're quite right in saying that, you know, if, if either of those overruns and you've got a problem, um, so that, you know, so that for me suggests having a project plan, um, you know, so if you have a project plan, um, which, you know, includes things like your financial budget, your, your timescales, the people who are involved, you know, the scope of works that's involved, you know, is a minimum. 
um, uh, then you can you can coordinate that project. Would that be fair? Is that fair? Even if you're doing a sort of a fairly simple light refurb, you don't necessarily need it to be a, a fancy pants sort of Gantt chart using Microsoft Project, but you you would still have some way of measuring the project, would you? I, I would absolutely recommend that, that, and I'm sure Sergio will come in with with the kind of projects that he's talking about. I'm sure he's got a very detailed project plan, but yeah, people who are doing again starting out may have no project plan, or more likely they'll have some unrealistic project plan. And I think um, you know we're we're all we all think we can do far more than we actually can, which generally makes project plans you know over ambitious and sometimes unrealistic. And one of my recommendations would be to people that haven't got that kind of experience in dealing with, it could be a very small project or something a bit more ambitious, is if you can speak to someone who has done what you're trying to do, see if you can get hold of their project plan because don't try and reinvent the wheel. If you can speak to someone and say, look, can you just give me um, the project plan perhaps that you use for your project because I'm doing something similar, I guarantee there will be things in there that you have not even considered. And it's a great basis to start to tailor your own specific project plan to. Mm. Sergio was giving various head gestures when you were referring to him there. So um, I'm trying to figure out what that meant, Sergio. So come on, why don't you tell us what's on your mind about project plans? Yeah, so Rich touched on on very, very, very good points. And I just want to make clear that it doesn't matter the size and it doesn't matter, you know, whether you have a massive gun chart with 3,000, with a program of 3,000 activities, we still get the projects late and over budget at 26 million pounds. So for me, it's to, you know, a lot of, that at the end of the day, a construction pro project has a lot of variability and you need to figure out a way to reduce that variability to the, to the minimum. And you can do that by talking to people that know. As Richard mentioned, you can talk to somebody that's done something similar. If you don't have that person, you can talk to three or four builders and each of them will give you their view so that you can create your own view from their inputs. Um, and then once you are at the stage where you are doing the project, you just need to realize that there's going to be issues. So you have to have a contingency, both in budget and in time. And, and you need to be on top of things to be able to react quickly. And that helps if you have a good team. But... Um, if not, unfortunately, it's just on you because it's your project. So you need to figure out a way of dealing with the issues that you have. A lot of the times, you know, projects finish late because we change things ourselves or the client. So it's not strictly fair in just putting the blame on, you know, the utilities company or the subcontractor not turning up on site. Because we sometimes piss off those people by not doing things on time or by not giving them what they wanted or changing things last minute. So there's a lot of things that change in a project. But the point I'm trying to make is first have a good plan and then be able to react quickly. Yeah, very good point. I think you've, the variability point is really important because with projects, there's a degree of complexity, right? you've got lots of moving parts. It's interesting you talk about a 3,000-line project plan. But, you know, even if you've got a, a kind of refurb project, if you think about it, you might have plumbing, you might have electrics, you might have carpentry, you might have plastering, you might have flooring. You know, already I've up to five and, you know, different trades. And within that, you've got, you know, your first fix, your second fix, you know, different components, you know, your schedule of finishes, you know, what, what standard you want, what look you want, what's your um, end market. So there's a, the, the, the point about control and decision-making is really valid. I think equally uh, you touched on team and people. I'll come back to that. But before I move off it, I want to bring Daniel back in because um, Daniel, what, what's been your approach to, you know, managing the projects that you've been working on over the last two or three you've, you've kind of worked on? It's been very hands-on and they're, they're daily really. Just 
just being on the builders all the time. And also I like to learn because on, on the first project, it was completely out of my hands, you know, like, uh, like Sergio's projects, if they go wrong, Sergio jumps on site to help out. He's not going to do anything. There's no difference. So once it starts losing control at a big, on a big scale, it loses control fast. So I'm trying to keep, keep a tight reins on the project so that it doesn't lose control fast. So how do you, how do you um, keep tight reins on? What, what does that mean to you, Daniel? Yeah, get there earlier than everybody else. Make sure everybody knows what they're doing as soon as they get there. Go and get some materials after. So the tradesmen, as soon as they come in, they know what they're doing. They've got a list to do. If they need any materials, it can be nipped off and got. So they're just constantly working on the job and just keep, well, just just keep on them constantly, you know. <laughs> make sure that <laughs> just make sure that what we've agreed is being done in a, a timely fashion. Yeah, I think what we, you know, also there's a slight distinction, isn't there? Because you've got project management, let's say that at the one end, so that's planning your budget. You know, who you're gonna, who's gonna do what at various stages, the 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 format and the the rollout of the program. But to some extent, what you're talking about there, Daniel, is more like site management. Right. So on site, who does what job? Are the roles clear? Have they got what they need? You know, in terms of the materials, for example, that's like, and you're on their case, as you kind of say. So there's some distinct roles there. And of course, if it's a small project, it might be we are project manager and site manager and, you know, everything else. But as, as the scale perhaps and the complexity increases, you might then start to separate out those roles into distinct roles. Yeah, is that fair? Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think if you were going above a couple of hundred grand um, on the works, you'd maybe you get a. If, if you couldn't do the work yourself, you'd then employ a manager. But for me personally, I like to be the manager just to be to be involved, so I can see every aspect of it unfolding. And and just to be clear, you you you're on site a lot, right? So. Yeah you're pretty much full-time in this business, right? Yeah, I'd say three, between, yeah, three quarters of the day or two-thirds I'll be there on-site and the rest of it will be project managing off-site. Okay. And what about you, Rich? What's, how do you approach project or site management? Um, it really depends, again, on the scale um, and and who I'm dealing with. So, as I said, um, my, my main contractor builder, I've now got, had the relationship with him for 16 years. So I know how he operates. He knows how I like to operate. Um, literally today, he's doing he's doing a work on a commercial uh, building for me that uh, he started uh, a few months back for me. And uh, there was some aspect he wasn't sure about. And he just phoned me up and he said, look, this is the problem. I can either do this or I can do that. How would you like me to proceed? I gave my direction and off he goes and does it. Now I can do that because I, you know, he's part of my power team and, uh, you know, I know how he operates. And uh, if that was someone that I was very unfamiliar with, I might have said, don't do anything. I need to come to site. I need to look at it, et cetera, et cetera. So it really depends on actually who I'm dealing with and, and how I would respond to that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, especially when, you know, I think the implication there being that you weren't on site, right, when he called you, yeah, and I presume you're not on site constantly badgering him like maybe Daniel was with his project, right? So it could be different. No, that's true. That's, 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 um, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit different to Daniel because I know, I, I know in Daniel is very, very much, he's really on top of what's going on, um, Again, a little bit of what I tend to do is when I establish a timing, uh, a timeline with my builder, and I don't tell him this, so I hope he's not going to listen to this, but I always build in a little bit of buffer. So if he says he's going to take 10 weeks to do this, I'll allow 11 weeks or 12 weeks because there's going to be something come up. I, I don't expect him to be perfect. I know there's going to be a problem arise that he can't resolve on the timeline that we've agreed for whatever reason that is. So I always personally build in a little bit of buffer uh, into all my projects. Um, it makes for, for 
good sleeping um, is what I would say. Um, because otherwise, if you just set yourself too tight uh, a project plan, um, you, you can really lose sleep and stress over that you're not hitting your timeline. Um, so for me, I've learned this from being completely in control of my projects, um, that that just works for me. And, um, uh, you know, that's how I approach it. Fair enough. And in my own case, one of the lessons I guess I've learned is um, I, I, I use the phrase, have my own eyes and ears. So um, even if, you know, I've appointed someone as a contractor, whether that's one tradesperson, a main contractor or whatever arrangement I've got, I will have somebody who represents me and my interests who will go to site and will, you know, check on things. And, you know, the, the level of, de- you know, frequency of, and detail of those checks would, would vary depending on the nature of the project. But that's something I've learned <laughs> over years is to make sure I have my own eyes and ears uh, and it, in my case, you know, to be honest, it's no point me going to look at a project and, and checking the quality of the build because I'm not a builder. So I would have a suitably experienced and qualified person perform that role for me. That's the way I would do that. But I guess some of you guys, you you know, Daniel, you're a bricklayer by trade, you say. So I'm sure you can in, inspect the construction works and, and see if there's anything wrong yourself. Yeah, I, I just think... Um... I just think uh, worst case scenario, like during the, the last recession, there was nobody available, not a recession, sorry, just during this pandemic, there was nobody available and materials wasn't there. So instead of the job being on stop, you know, I was there, carried on the job mm-hmm. for the family member. So, you know, it's it's just, just an extra string to your bow. Yeah. And I think I remember, by the way, you telling me during the pandemic that you were like, you were getting materials ahead of, you know, in advance and kind of, you could foresee that there'd be a shortage. Yeah. I seem to remember you doing that. Um, yeah. So being resourceful and resilient and having a bit of foresight, you know, uh, can actually pay off. Um, we touched on a little bit of like the team and stuff, and I'm going to come back to the team and roles, but I think the other thing about a project is there's like certain dependencies potentially with other parties. So Rich, you were talking about when things are outside of your control, building control is an example of an outside party. But as you get into more complex projects, particularly if like you're creating new units and things like that, we've got other parties to to negotiate and deal with, haven't we? So who, who could we get in? Who could get, who could interfere, I guess? Who do we need to negotiate with? Uh, and coordinate on our projects just to throw it out what what have you experienced well, the project i'm on at the minute there's this this tenants above so i don't they don't appreciate um you know heavy machinery blasting first thing in the morning if they're working nights you know so you've just got to uh you've got to you've got to let people know beforehand people are in the vicinity what's happening if mm-hmm. if you know, if there's just a, a stud wall or a floor between you, mm. otherwise it can uh, it can become very difficult. Yeah. And what about other parties that you might need to uh, engage in your project? I'm thinking maybe the utilities and people like that, maybe. Yeah, without without doubt, for me, uh, the water. You know, I'm not going to name any specific, but the water companies are just a, a, again another world to themselves and i think partly because you know they, they've they've got a almost a closed shop you know they've been assigned a certain area um there's no competition there so i don't think there's any real pressure on them to improve customer service and again <clears throat> the bungalow uh, that i had built um i was dealing directly with the uh, the for for the sewage uh, I was dealing with the water company in, in relation to that, and things just took forever. Uh, I remember, you know, when it was first being um, put through, and I was waiting for effectively the, the case officer uh, to be assigned, or the, uh, the uh, you know, the person that was going to deal with my particular job of works. And I phoned up after about two weeks, and I said, I haven't heard anything. And they said, Oh no, we haven't assigned anyone yet. It should happen next week. And, I, you know, I just couldn't believe that that kind of thing can happen. But, again, <clears throat> if you haven't had that experience before, 
you might you might not build that into your project plan and 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 this is how things can very quickly go awry yeah, i think the utilities is one that you know if you're doing a project you really need to think about utilities just you know to get a price for a, an electric connection for instance there can be you know 10 to 12 weeks just to get a price and then you could be waiting again for the works so just before you're doing the project like like the planning that we've just been talking about just factor in those speak to someone who's done the jo job previously if you've not and um and put that on a to-do list absolutely sergio I want to bring you back in here so i bet you've got a number of external parties that you engage with on some of these projects what what's your what's been your experience and what would you recommend people take into consideration it's exactly what uh, Rich and Daniel were saying. Um, if you're going to do any new connections, you will have to engage these utility companies. So uh, you just need to build um, in the time into your program. Um, other things I can think of other than uh, obviously water, electrics and gas and internet uh, are things like, you know, when you're doing works, um, say on a public footpath you're putting a scaffold there you're going to have to need licenses from the from the council um so i've just had a project um before the one i'm going to start now where we we've just had to extend the license obviously originally you need to get it if you need to um excavate on the public footpath you need to get another license We've also had to, um, this, we were building a, an office in between two walls, like in between two properties. So we had two party wall agreements and we had to get agreement to put the scaffold over the um, existing building to the left-hand side of our property. Um, so for that, you also need to factor in time to get the agreements right, get the permission from your neighbors get both party wall surveyors involved, which takes time. And, you know, sometimes they might not want to do it or you might have to liaise with the people to ensure that you can get it. So it's, you know, sometimes not about time or money. It's also about relationships and, and how you treat people. Because if you're going to be doing a demolition as we were doing, and you're going to be disturbing your tenants and, and, and they might leave, uh, so the owner is not going to be happy. So you might have to give in and restrict your demolition hours just so you can get the license to put your scaffold on top of their building. And and all of those conversations take time and, and you need to factor that in. And you can't just go and say, well, you need to give me permission because I'm going to be building this. It just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's another couple of examples of external um, um, parties. Yeah, some good ones. You know, I remember we, we um, just wanted to do, dem you know, demolition within a, a building and outside was a um, public highway and to put a skip, you know, just want to put a skip down just so we could put a load of rubbish in it. It took about four days to, because we needed to get a permit before we could put the skip down. So it just delayed the demolition by that four days. We couldn't, we couldn't deliver the skip until we got the permit, you know, and okay, maybe it was four days and that wasn't too, too bad. But, you know, these are the little things that eat into your project timelines. And so trying to be uh, planning ahead, you know, for these things is, uh, is very, very wise. Um, the, the, the other things maybe to think about, um, are there things that you need to do in terms of preparing a, a property or a site um, there's an obvious one that which is you know always comes up whenever I'm looking at uh, projects these days. I just for me it's asbestos, um, but are there other things like that in terms of surveys or, or requirements before you get involved in a site that people um, you know could could mention and, and got some uh, tips on? I mean asbestos was the most recent one for me, Richard. Uh, so I bought. Um, quite recently or completed on a, a block of apartments and um the uh, i was going to i was going to refinance on the block and uh, they insisted on having a f uh, an asbestos survey luckily only in the communal areas um because i think that's actually the the requirement um right uh, it wasn't a hmo they were all self-contained individual apartments so 
um, that was something I had to, you know, pull together for the finance company rather than actually of interest for me because I'd looked at the building and I thought it, you know, it looked acceptable to what to what I'm used to. But um, again, um, building that timing in, it took about two weeks for someone to be free to be able to go and do the survey, and then uh, a further two weeks before I got the report. Well, that slowed down the finance being approved by four weeks. Um, so again, uh, something that maybe you've not thought about, and I, again, I come back to the idea of if someone's done something you want to do, try and get hold of their project plan or their budget plan, whatever it is, um, it will make you aware of things like this that uh, maybe you don't consider. But all of these things can very quickly have a knock-on effect to either delaying your timing or, or your budget being exceeded. Absolutely. Um, so, and if you're doing things like new build developments or things like that, you, you often have a bunch of surveys, uh, even if you're not doing a new build development. So I've, I had to do soil surveys, for example, ground surveys. Um, you sometimes have transport surveys or noise surveys and things like that you need to do for planning purposes, um, you know, and, and access. If you're, if it's not necessarily a new build, you might have uh, other types of survey, particularly, you know, if you see a bit of damp, that's quite a common problem, and obviously in older properties, uh, you need to get done, um, particularly with financing. So you talk about third parties having input, finance companies or finance providers are one of the most significant ones, and then often have this, this kind of requirement. And I think the other thing to remember is at the other end of it, you might need a new build warranty, where you need to start at the beginning to get the new build warranty at the end, or professional certificate, something like that. Um, and equally, you might need an EPC, um, for for new build property, you might need to get a new address. But, you know, these you, know, you can't get broadband unless you've got the address, which I discovered. <laughs> you know, things like this, um, and then you've got silly little things like if your property is empty for a period of time, you might get stung for um, penal council tax rates. So, there's a couple of things like that. I just wanted to say, I'm kind of just throwing those out there because I actually wanted to move on to um, do we do we all work alone on our projects or do we work with other people? leading question don't try and do it all on your own <laughs> <laughs> so what are the sorts of people that you work with daniel um well the professionals the utility companies that you need to instruct but really just the trades people really um other than the professionals who you need it's just the trades people i work with but that's that you've highlighted that really for me and you know the professionals and the yeah. tradespeople. So, you know, they're two key people that you might need around. So the professionals might might include what sorts of types of uh, people? You've got your electricians, your plasterers, your plumbers, kitchen fitters, painters. That's more on the trades side. Uh, and on the um, the actual professionals, like we've got one here amongst our mitts. We've got, a you know, a Rick's chartered surveyor um, with Sergio. So you might have a surveyor. And what about other types of professionals like that? So surveyors, if you want to change any walls, you might need a structural engineer just to see if the wall's supporting. Um, your, building, your building instructor. Architect. Yeah, your architect. Architect, sometimes a planning consultant. Um, so uh, you might need a... Pardon? Just depending on the level of project. Yeah, you might you might need. Um, so I talked about planning consultant. There was something else in my mind there. Uh, oh yeah, pro some sort of project manager or a site manager. So um, and of course you've got your. Uh, I call them service providers. What I mean by that is you know maybe your insurance broker, maybe a finance broker, maybe a solicitor. Um, you know things like uh, I've got it on a site of mine now, and you know effectively I want to split the site. Um, you know, and, and I section off or hive off a part of the of the site. So that I mean amending the title, uh, which I need to do before I refinance. Because if I don't, if I do it after refinancing, I probably won't get permission from the lender to do that. So these these things you need to. What I'm getting at is there's quite a number of people that we need to coordinate, right? So we've got the complexity of the construction that we've been talking about, and the project plan, and the budget, and the different trades, and the sequence of work. Then we've got the complexity of the different people that are involved, the trades, the professions, the service providers. 
So why on earth are we doing this? Why why are we you know got all this complexity? And, you know, just somebody tell me why, why are we doing it? The satisfactory feeling at the end of the project. I'm genuinely <laughs> curious. You you get a satisfactory feeling at the end of the project, Sergio and uh, Rich. Come on, why do we do this? That's a that's a very good question, <laughs> and, and sometimes I do I do find myself looking at what I'm doing and think, why on earth am I doing this? But you do get a lot of sack. Uh, sack. Uh, being an ex-engineer myself, um, uh, you know, my whole career has been about problem solving. And um, I think being in property, you do quickly learn that you have to become a problem solver because there are all kinds of things that are always thrown at you. And... Um, you just have to, you know, deal with them one at a time, fix a problem, move on to the next thing, fix a problem, move on. If you, you know, uh, as Matt Damon said in the film Martian, you know, if you solve enough problems, you know, you complete what you've been, you know, tasked to achieve or what you want to try and achieve. So uh, it, it, there is a great deal of satisfaction, I think, that uh, once you've completed something and ultimately, you know, you're looking to create a home for someone, whether you've, you rent it out or whether you actually choose to sell it. Um, that's ultimately why we're doing this. And uh, I take a lot of pride in the properties that I have, uh, maintain them to a good high standard um and 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 having very happy tenants that have been with me for many many years uh on the ones that i rent out and uh i get a great deal of satisfaction from that cool stuff come on sergio why do you do it it's at the end of the day um we're always going to face challenges it doesn't matter if it's property or if it's anywhere to be honest and and I, I think so the projects where I've, I think, suffered the most, um, where I got the most involved, those are the ones that actually, you know, you, you, you feel a bit more proud when you finish them. Um, you know, obviously you need to look back and, and actually have that feeling afterwards. During the time, it's, it's tough. Uh, you, you, as Richard says, it feels like you're having a problem after another. And But there's little wins as well, you know, uh, when, when you place a contract with somebody for less money than what you had allowed for. That's a good result. So, you know, you take that money and put it in your pot and you watch it like a hawk and you don't want to lose it. Uh, but there'll be other times where you have to spend more money and, and you won't feel as good. So uh, you will have your wins and, and losses. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think if, you know, if you put, if you put your effort in what you do, generally you would feel um, proud of what you do, um, even if it has to be afterwards. You've got a sense of satisfaction or pride. You've got, um, you know, building a home for somebody to live in. Um, we've got, you know, problem solving itself, you know, that can be there. I think for me to maybe add to that, I think it would be, you know, let's say, let's, what is the purpose we're here for? I mean, value, you add it, you're creating value as well so i think a project enables us to create value or add value to a property and then that's got a financial return you know as well so you know that's that's one of the incentives why we put ourselves through this um you know and, and the ability to create you know it's it is a form of creativity um we're not maybe artists but you know we're creating something from from you know we're transforming something from what was to something new so for me, they're, they're, you know, really important things. And um, I think, you know, I, I do a bit of what you, know, you might call build to rent. So I, quite, I take a lot of satisfaction thinking, oh, well, I built that. That's going to be my legacy. That's going to be in my portfolio. That's going to be however many tenants for, for a home for many, many a year to come. And, you know, maybe I've got a bit more gray hair than, you know, I, I started with. But I have a great deal of satisfaction from knowing that too, to pick up the, you know, the points that you do, you mentioned there. So, um, yeah, I was kind of saying, why do we do this? And, and hoping I get some positive responses. <laughs> uh, maybe I didn't frame the question in a way that might uh, elicit all those positive responses. But thanks for bringing them out. 
So I think, is there anything that, you know, I'm, I'm going to move on to perhaps closing up and ask in a minute about things like your top tips or things to, you know, any no-nos, things to avoid in terms of projects. I'm going to come to that so you can start thinking about that. But is there anything we haven't covered that, you know, we should in this, this conversation just think about who's listening and hang on, hang on, Richard, you, you can't possibly end a conversation about managing projects without talking about that. Anything we haven't really covered? I don't think so. I think it's more or less all there. If, you, if you've got a plan in place and speak to people who've already walked those steps, you know, that's, that's, I'd say that's the main start. I think it's about having um, the right mindset as well. You know, if you go into, you know, it can be a small project, but certainly anything as it starts to get larger, thinking it's all going to run perfectly well, um, it's just not like that. But, you know, you will get through it like anything. And uh, it's just about staying positive, understanding that you're, you're going to have setbacks, you know, it undoubtedly. I, I can't think of any anything I've had uh, dealt with as a project through my entire life um, that has gone completely smoothly. You know, there are always going to be setbacks, large or small, depending on what they are. But I think if you have a positive mindset, um, you know, that's really important to have uh, with anything that you're dealing again with within, proje uh, within projects and with property projects in particular. I think we're missing Sergio. Uh, yeah, um, just one word, resilience. You just have to be resilient and, um, you know, take on every problem you get. It's not all problems. You know, I, I don't think that's the idea that we should be giving um, away here. Um, projects don't always go wrong all the time. And if you have a, a good team, whether big or small, uh, whether it's full of um, consultants or just your builders or your trusted builder, as Rich said, you don't really need any more. And then just try to plan for it. Just build a little bit of a contingency and, and you know, go out of your comfort zone, but don't try to stretch too much. Try to process. What was that, Daniel? I'm going to say, try and enjoy the process. Sorry for interrupting that, Sergio. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Enjoy the process. Um, so, okay, maybe drawing to a close. Um, any final uh, closing comments, thoughts, tips? You know, don't do this type of stuff. You might have just wrapped that up there, but, you know, just to go around, you know, what would you want people to hold in their mind, you know, from your experience of managing projects? What the, what the key, you know, one, one or two tips or one or two things not to do? My, my, my top tip would be don't change the specification. <laughs> a simple example, uh, you know, you see this all the time on things like grand designs and other property programs. The budget says an acrylic bath, and the next thing, they've gone out and bought a copper bath. You know, it's not going to achieve your budget if you're, instead of sticking with the specification of whatever that is, you decide to put your real own stamp on a property, particularly if you're going to rent it out, um, you're not going to hit your budget. It's as simple as that. So for me, it would be once you've set your, if you want, if you're serious about hitting your budget, do not change the specification, stick with it and you should be on target. Really I a, tip, a tip that I could give there is if, is if you're going to instruct someone or work with someone I've asked to have a look at previous works they've done or ask the people who they've worked with how the person operates because I fell foul of both. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how we learn. You know, that's, that's what's experience, isn't it? We, we learn from our own mistakes. Um, but wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes. So you're wise if you listen to Daniel and yeah. uh, you learn from what, one of the lessons he's learned. So thanks for that one. Have you got one, Sergio? I'd say um, whatever you do, uh, just compare it. If you get quotes from a contractor, get quotes from three or four. If you talk to architects, talk to two or three. And uh, that will give you a good idea of where you should be with your costs. 
and also during the construction just uh you know be close to it and if you can't as you do richard just have somebody that will be close to the process because as daniel said if the project gets out of control then it's the, the, the more out of control it gets the more difficult it is to bring it back so stay on top of things cool and one for me, I think, you know, uh, I, 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 a bit like Daniel, I've learned this, you know, myself through, through pain, actually. But there's no substitute for experience. But if you don't have the experience yourself, you can bring it in. So I think that, for me, is probably my top tip. So I think I'm all for, and I, I've grown, you know, I've did, you know, small projects, medium projects, and, you know, people might call what I call large projects, small projects, especially compared to what Sergio is doing. But, you know, kind of progressively moved up. Um, but they're not all the same. They don't operate the same way. And so when you move to the next level, it's a different level of experience and you need different people around you, or, you know, perhaps to be able to, uh, to manage those sort of projects. So I think for me, it's like, you know, get out of your comfort zone, but don't get out so far that you, you snap. <laughs> um, that's number one. And number two, try and surround yourself with people with the experience and with the knowledge and with the capability to deliver what you wish to deliver so that that would probably be my single tip but there's so much we could talk about in this topic um but it's you know we, we've just reached about the, the hour mark so i think unless anyone's unless there's anything people want to come back with an ad um then i think i'd just like to say thanks so much to the panelists you know rich parker daniel riley sergio grandi uh, poor old Vaz didn't manage to make it he's he, I, I can see his name he didn't make it so you don't know who on earth he is why am I talking about a guy who's not on the podcast, but he did try. I think he's been listening to us on and off. I've got the odd text message from him. So we'll try and get you in another one. Um, but thanks for making the effort. So thanks, uh, thanks everybody. Um, this will be out shortly. Um, but I really appreciate you joining me today and sharing, guys. It's been very, very valuable. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It, it's really good when you have that kind of chat with people who um, they've got varied interests and experience um, in terms of working on projects of different size and their approach is also different too. So you might have listened to Daniel who's really hands-on uh, and how he goes about things and contrasted that with say me or Rich Parker who's a little bit more hands-off in how we go about things all the way through to Sergio who's got 3,000 lines on his project plan um, uh, in the office as well and breaking down 25, was it 25, 26 million pound construction pro uh, projects into multiple work packages over several years so you're going to get some in interesting and different insights there there's so much to take away i'm not going to do a summary hopefully you've taken notes as you've been along um been been listening along but um i hope hopefully you found that of interest so that's uh, managing projects which is um the third part really it was managing properties managing portfolios and managing projects the last few weeks we've been covering hopefully you've got some merit out of that i'm going to come back next week with another property core skill uh, in the meantime, you can find the show notes, the transcription over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. You can drop me an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you'd like to talk to me or in, indeed like to be introduced to any one of our panellists. I'm happy to do that, providing they're happy to share their details, which they usually are. But I guess all that remains to say right now is thanks very much for listening once again uh, this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, this chapter. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.